Good morning. Great to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at a Resurrection OC. Uh, let me invite you to turn with you turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter three. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a, a blue uh, church Bible on the ground near you, and you can find Revelation three on page ten twenty nine there. And um, oh, I wanted to say one more thing, um, just a kind of an update. Um, if you have been uh, with our church for a, a few months, um, you may remember this, but um, we have been uh, kind of in the background, um, uh, something that's, that's coming in, in, in the next couple months that I wanted to just give you an update on, and that is that uh, we have been working towards uh, bringing a church planning apprentice to come and work with us, and um, uh, because some money that our denomination has, been, uh, has made available to us, we have kind of the opportunity to hire a young pastor who is moving towards uh, church planting. We're a, we're a young church. Um, we're only three years old. Actually, today is, I think, maybe technically our third anniversary. Um, pretty cool, right? Uh, March 20th, 2016, we launched a church. This is probably the closest Sunday to the 20th. Um, today's the 17th, yes. Eventually, we'll get to the sermon. Don't worry. It's not going to get shorter because of what I'm saying right now. Um, so, in the background, uh, our leaders and um, ha- have been uh, working with a, a young guy named Trevor Allen, who is graduating from seminary in South Carolina uh, the first week of May, and he's been raising support to um, come and work with us, and uh, the, the plan is that he'll work with us for two years. As uh, it's basically an assistant pastor in our church, and then at the end of two years, we will uh, send him off, um, and he will plant a new church. And uh, one of the things I'm really excited about that he's going to be focusing on this summer is just helping us get our youth ministry up and running. And uh, so our, our hope is this is going to be a benefit to our church, um, but it's also going to be a blessing to the Allen family. And so just, yeah, I want to give you an update on that. Our, our, our temporary elder board uh, about two weeks ago just voted to give him the green light to move. And um, so they are in the throes of moving. The Allens, um, Trevor and Noel, and they have two kids, Benji and Abby. And uh, they have sold their house in South Carolina. They close escrow tomorrow. And um, they're going to be kind of homeless for eight weeks while he finishes seminary, and then they will join us on May 15th. So um, please be praying for the Allens as, uh, as you think about it. Okay, so with that um, exciting news, uh, let me invite you to stand with me as we read Revelation chapter 3, the uh, letter of Jesus to the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, starting in verse 1, says this, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, we, uh, we come to you this morning, and God, many of us uh, come with um, cares and worries. God, we're, uh, we're overwhelmed at um, uh, the headlines and the news and the things in our own hearts and lives. God, many are worried, uh, even here in our church, about uh, finances and jobs and relationships. And so, God, I pray that you would speak good news to us this morning. Would you give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to your people? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So there were, there were two things that happened this week that, um, that uh, people told me I, I needed to mention. And one is butterflies. And... Uh, I couldn't figure out a way to work butterflies in, so, but I'm reserving the right to talk about butterflies next week. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, is Facebook and Instagram going down, and I, apparently Gmail was also like inaccessible for a few hours, all at the same time on like Wednesday or Thursday of this week. And um, I, w- I was told I had, to, I had to work this into the sermon, so, um, <laughs> so here goes. So, so the question, Instagram's down. And um, like it raises the question of like, what did we do before Instagram, you know? And how did we know what food looked like before um, Instagram? And what did we do with all of our time? There's actually some interesting reports that have come out already on where people um, shifted their attention when Facebook and Instagram were down. I don't think it was particularly encouraging. But um, what did food look like before Instagram? It sent me down this rabbit hole where I rediscovered um, Kodak. You remember Kodak? I mean, if you're older than, uh, I don't know, 20, you are probably aware of Kodak. Um, Kodak was the, uh, you know, um, they made film and cameras <laughs> when you needed film for a camera. And um, Kodak was kind of one of the most successful, was the most successful kind of photography-related uh, company for, for like 100 years. Um, Kodak introduced the idea of the snapshot uh, just a quick shot that like, it doesn't have to be perfect or well-posed, just like an everyday snapshot of what's going on in life. Um, it's, of course, from Kodak that we have the phrase, a Kodak moment, this kind of, oh, like, peace, beautiful, like, scene. Um, and uh, it, Kodak, you know, reigned. In, in, in 1976, Kodak had an 85% share of the market in cameras and 90% of the market share in film. And yet in 2012, Kodak filed bankruptcy. And um, the question, of course, becomes what happened to Kodak? Um, And it's not that they didn't see digital cameras coming. Kodak produced and sold digital cameras. But it sounds like most, uh, like I said, I was deep down this hole. (laughs) But most analysts say that what happened to Kodak was that they were blinded by their own success. And uh, they were so successful that they'd they'd established this such a glowing reputation that they just could not conceive of being anything other than kind of the king of the photography market and industry. They'd been so successful for so long that they rested on their reputation and therefore severely underestimated the challenges uh, that they faced in the present. And of course, Kodak isn't the only company to go down that road. Um, Blockbuster Video, 
You remember like wandering the halls of or the aisles of Blockbuster Video on Friday night looking for something and now you just scroll through Netflix and Blockbuster is gone. Uh, Sears is another brand that is kind of just swirling the drain, still managing to stay alive, but Sears um, with their catalog and then with their retail stores, <coughs> Sears, I didn't realize this, Sears was the most um, successful retailer in the country um, until you know a short time ago in the in the 1970s. Uh, Sears was so successful that they built the tallest building in the country, right? That's kind of their headquarters, but a monument to their success, the Sears Tower um, in Chicago, which was, was the tallest building in, in, uh, in the country until, uh, until 2014. Um, they established brands like Craftsman and Die Hard and Kenmore that were uh, signs of quality, you know, like this gold standard of, of quality. Um, Craftsman doesn't quite carry the same reputation anymore, does it? But, but um, you know, so successful for so long that this reputation, and, and it would have been easy, you know, not that long ago to think these brands would never fade, would never fail, would never be gone. But of course, it's not just big companies that rest on their reputation and their past accomplishments. We, we know this in our lives all too well, too. Um, we've all, maybe some of us, you know, have, have experiences personally. Uh, relationships that come to an end, friendships, marriages that we once thought were, uh, were stalwart and solid evaporate. Um, we know what it's like to spin our wheels at work, to feel like no matter how hard we work, um, nothing seems to come to fruition. What do you do when you're just spinning your wheels, when your marriage is on life support, when your work is frustrating, when you love your kids but you just can't seem to get through to them? That, I think, is what Jesus is talking about in Revelation 3. Um, when he speaks to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3, Jesus, Jesus says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. I think it's the most devastating critique that Jesus levies at any of these um, seven churches that he speaks to in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, this church is a church that is so busy doing great things that they have lost sight of what really matters. They're so busy doing the things that they forgot to do things that matter. Um, it's a church that is going through the motions but is deluded about their, their true condition. They don't know who they are. They don't care anymore. They're unconcerned. Um, it could be, I think, a description of the church in North America in the 21st century. A church that has a reputation for greatness and yet perhaps has lost its course. Is it possible that this is a description of us, of our church? The church in Sardis, uh, of these seven churches that Jesus speaks to in Revelation 2 and 3, scholars think that, that the church in Sardis was the largest of these seven churches. Uh, Sardis was a, a large city. It was a, it was a powerful city. It was an influential city. And the church there had grown large, and it was comfortable. Um, there's no, the one thing that Jesus does not mention, there's no mention of, of suffering in, the, in, in what he says to the church in Sardis. I think it's the only one that he doesn't say anything about them being squeezed from the outside. And so they had grown, and they had grown comfortable, and they had grown complacent. Um, and Jesus comes and says to this church with a great history and a great reputation, he says, I know you. 
I see your works, you have the reputation for being alive, but I know that you are truly dead. It's a spirituality with all of the externals, but none of the power. All of the appearance, but none of the substance. Their deeds for all of their works, they look great, but they aren't oriented towards God and his kingdom and his glory. Um, it's a church that only attempts ministry that they have the human resources to pull off. We only do something if we know we have the budget to do it. We only do something if we know we have the resources to pull it off. And so they have no need for the Spirit of God to animate their life. And Jesus' words to the church in Sardis are harsh. I know your works, but you are dead. They're harsh, and yet the fact that Jesus is saying this to the church implies hope. Like, well, he's not just coming to castigate this church. And so what he's saying is that there's always hope. There, there's possibility to, for change. Hope is alive. Grace is real. Jesus says, you have the reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Um, one commentary that I read used this analogy of water skiing to describe this church. I think this is, a, this is a great way to think about this. What do you need to water ski? You only need three things. You need some skis, you need a rope, and you need a boat. And as long as you have all three of those things, you can water ski. And you, uh, you, you know, you're on your skis, you hold onto the rope, and the boat tows you. And if you're getting towed by the boat, you're skiing. And if you let go of the rope, you're going to sink. And you may coast for 30 or 40 yards, but as soon as you let go of the source of power, you're going to sink. And that's the image uh, of this church. The church does not, we are not the source of our own life. And the lie that we, that we believe as Americans is that we can become, we can be the source of our own life. And the Bible says it's not true. You are not the source of your own life. But you have a, a rope, you have a tether to the one who is the author of life itself. And as long as you keep holding on to Jesus, and I guess, of course, there's ups and downs, and life is hard, and I don't want to minimize that, but keep holding on to Jesus, and you will get through. You will prevail. Um, all of the, 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 the book of Revelation, over and over again, has this constant encouragement to those who overcome, to those who endure, to those who make it to the end. Just hold on to Jesus. He is the source. He is the connection to your source of life. But you are not the boat. You're not the boats. You've got to hold on to the one who connects you to the source of life. And so there's an urgency in Jesus' words here. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Um, and you will, not, you will not know the hour that I'm coming. I will come like a thief and I will come against you. More about that in a minute. But there's this sense of urgency, but there's always also this note of hope. There's hope for those of us who have let go of the rope. Um, there's hope, hope for those of us who have um, stumbled. There's hope for those of us because, not to press the metaphor too far, but the boat can circle back around. <laughs> the boat can come back and pick us up. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't, I don't know if, if I believe any of this. And there's, there's hope for you because Jesus is alive. Reach out to him, hold on to him. And there's hope for you this morning if you feel like life is just beating you down. Just keep holding on to Jesus. Just keep holding on to Jesus. There is hope. Hope is alive. Hold on to him. Maybe somebody dragged you into church this morning and you're not sure you really want to be here. And all I want to encourage you to do is just don't give up. Don't give up on Jesus. So how do we stay alive? How do we stay connected to the boat? How do we keep holding on to Jesus? Well, there are five imperatives in this passage. 
There are five imperatives that Jesus um, uh, instructs, commands uh, the, the church in Sardis and a resurrection OC. Five imperatives, five commands. And the first is this, wake up. Wake up, he says. You have the reputation for being, you know, doing good works, but you are dead, so wake up. Um, this is a, uh, he's talking about being severely caught off guard here. Last Sunday. Last sun, like I wake up early most Sunday mornings, and last Sunday I wasn't preaching, and I was so excited to spend the night with old friends um, and to sleep in on Sunday morning, and we were going to church in the evening, and I was like, yes, I don't have to get up early, and I went to bed, and I forgot to turn off the alarm on my phone. And early, early, early in the morning, my alarm is blaring and I wake up and I'm in a different bed and I'm disoriented and my wife is shouting at me like, just make it stop, please. <sighs> there are a few things as soul crushing to me as being awoken from a deep slumber way too early. And you know what? It's like Jesus is dropping an alarm clock into a coffin and saying, wake up. Pay attention. Revelation is describing uh, somebody who is dead and asking them to wake up. Jesus says, you're dead, but I want you to wake up. And the alarm blares and we're caught off guard. But a dead person sits up in his casket and is alive again. Jesus is saying that we cannot put our life on autopilot. Um, I, I think there's this temptation in the world that we live in, and I think especially for Christians, to kind of get to this point where we can just coast in life, but you let go of the rope and you may coast for 30, 40 yards, but eventually you're going to sink. And so Jesus says, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Uh, the, the city of Sardis was a large city. It was the capital of the province it was in. It was a wealthy city. It had a, it had a strong military presence, and the city was built on the top of this hill. And so it was thought to be this kind of impenetrable fortress. It was, uh, I think, much of the city was surrounded by walls. And yet twice in the history of the city of Sardis, it had been invaded. And... Um, but this is what happened. An army could never come and attack Sardis. And so in, um, in 549 BC, Cyrus the Persian took the city by sending a single climber who climbed up the crags and over the wall and let the army in. And then a couple hundred years later, um, again in, um, in 2018 BC, Antiochus the Great sent 15 men who snuck into the fortress and opened the gates from within. Two times the city of Sardis, this great city, had been sacked because the watchmen were asleep. They had grown so comfortable and complacent that they thought they didn't need to be alert. And that's what led to their downfall. And so Jesus, drawing on that history, says, if you don't wake up, I'm going to come to you like a thief. And here's the thing. It's not that hard to protect against a thief if you know when they're going to come. Like, it's just not that hard. Like, I don't think most thieves want to break into an arm, you know, to a house, like a guarded house. A couple summers ago in our neighborhood, there was this, like, rash of, of uh, people's cars were being broken into. And even homes were, like, being, uh, people were discovering, like, muddy footprints in the entryway of their homes. And people were, like, paranoid. Uh, it was kind of funny in a way. But... Um, it's Ladera Ranch, but um, people were, were paranoid. And then it turns out what happened was teenagers in the summer were just bored. 
and they would walk down the street and just check the handle of every car door. And if a car was unlocked, they would maybe take something or they would just leave your door open as the sign of like, hey, you left your door open. It's not that hard to lock your door. <laughs> you know, It's not that hard to prevent against that sort of theft. And this is what Jesus is saying. Like, it, those who are caught off guard are just people who aren't paying attention. It's not that hard to protect against a thief, but we have to stay vigilant. And I think that's really encouraging. He's not calling for this like kind of superhero spirituality. Um, he's calling us to be vigilant, to pay attention. He's saying, he's saying in a sense, it's your responsibility to keep watch on your spirituality, your spiritual life. So let's be honest, the Christian church in our country has grown complacent. And for many of us, I think we have this sort of lowest common denominator approach to Christianity. Uh, we have this kind of lowest common denominator approach to our faith where we, where we wonder things like, what, like what's, the, what's the minimum required of me? How, how, like how little do I have to do to kind of keep God off my back and you know, keep him happy with me? And the answer is this, nothing. You don't have to do anything to keep God off of your back. Jesus has done everything for you. In his life, he lived for you. In his death, he died the death that you deserved. He died for you. In his resurrection, he breathes new life into you. You don't have to do anything to keep God off of your back. Jesus simply invites us to respond to who he is and to, to what he has done for us. Jesus says, you don't need to work hard to keep, you, keep me off of your back, but at the same time, he's saying, I, I want all of you. I don't want one hour a week from you. I want all of your time. I don't want 10% of your money, your time, your talents, your treasure. I want all of you. I love you. I gave myself for you. I want all of you, but we've grown complacent to the point that in some ways, Christians in our culture look exactly like everybody else. We just occasionally go to church. We just occasionally go to church if it's convenient. And what Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis and to us is that we are never more vulnerable than when we are comfortable. And so he says, wake up, wake up. Secondly, Jesus says, strengthen what remains. And I think, I think what that means is this, just begin where you are. Um, you don't have to start, like perfection is not uh, realistic. <laughs> Um, the Christian life is never about perfection. It's about grace. It's not about doing everything perfectly. It's about falling into the arms of grace when we fall. Many years ago, Ashley and I, my wife and I moved to Scotland and we knew it was going to be cold there. And having lived our entire existence in Southern California up to that point, we thought maybe we should get scarves. But we were poor and we're like, maybe we should knit scarves. And I didn't know anything. I, my entire experience of knitting took place uh, one afternoon where we were like, let's knit scarves. And I would like knit like six or seven rows in and then I would mess something up. And so I'd like pull the whole thing out and start over again. And I would knit like another four rows and then I'd mess up and then I'd like pull it all, all the yarn out and start again. And Ashley's looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, I messed up, so I'm starting over. And she's like, there's a way to fix it. You know, and I, I never finished. I, I don't know anything about, <laughs> about knitting. But you don't have to start over. Perfection um, is not the standard of the Christian life. 
The gospel is not the news that you need to be perfect. The gospel is the news that you have a Savior who has been perfect on your behalf. So come to him uh, no matter where you are, no matter what's going on in your life. There is enough grace for you. Start where you are. There's always hope where Jesus wouldn't be telling dead people to wake up. Start where you are. There's always hope. The third thing he says is remember. And this is important because this might be the most common command in the Bible. Remember. Um, the Bible's constant encouragement is to remember. Remember then what you have received and heard, he says. We have this problem in our family where we don't really understand what it means to know something. We have all these arguments in our family about who knows what. And so theoretically, there might be an example, that uh, a conversation that goes something like this, where there's a parent that says, that says to a child, um, you cannot go outside until you have picked up your room. And a child just maybe theoretically might say, I know. And I'm like, but then, <laughs> why, if you know, why does your room look the way that it looks? <laughs> well, I know, Dad. Well, if you know, then your room wouldn't. I'm sorry, this is hard. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? But sadly, it's not just my children that know things that they don't really know. Um, I heard this recently um, that education theory, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a uh, education theorist named Benjamin Bloom who uh, was famous for a theory saying that there are five stages associated with learning something. And it, 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 learning something begins with just awareness. Awareness that there's a problem and then it progresses to kind of thinking about it and pondering it and researching it And it's not until stages four and five of learning something new that our behavior actually begins to change And I think for many of us and maybe the Christian church in the time that we live in We are set stuck in this kind of stage one two three of knowledge of the gospel Where we know it, but it hasn't worked itself down into our lives uh, into our hearts, into our souls, and therefore outward in our behavior yet. We know it, but we don't really know it. And so it's easy for us to talk about, uh, talk about knowing, knowing that God is good, knowing that the Bible is true, knowing that Jesus died for us, lived for us, rose for us, and yet it doesn't actually affect our lives. And I'm guilty of this. I, um, you know, I, I, can, I can read something, I can listen to somebody say something, I'm like, I get that, I can teach it to other people. <laughs> but like it's not coming out of my life at all um, hasn't taken root in my soul yet and so Jesus is constantly saying to us remember remember who you are remember what I've done for you remember that I've lived for you remember that I died for you remember that I've been raised from, for the, from the dead for you remember that you are my child that you've been set free from guilt and shame because I have put to death your sin on the cross remember and we want to say, I know, I know, but it's only stage one, two, or three, and it hasn't affected our behavior. It hasn't affected the way we live. It hasn't worked itself down into our lives. And so when our boss says, hey, I need to talk to you later, we know the gospel is true, and God's going to take care of us no matter what, but we respond in fear. And there's a million other ways that works itself out, where we think we know something, but in the moment we respond in Defensiveness. We respond in fear. We respond by criticizing others. And so, uh, let me encourage you with this. This is why we have kind of a, 
retooled and re reshaped our community group ministry in our church and why we have a meeting uh, every other Thursday, this Thursday. Um, our community group is meeting because we're trying to build an environment where we can get together to remember. And, uh, and we, can, we can revisit the passage of scripture that we're looking at on Sunday mornings. So it's not just something we heard. And oh yeah, I know about that church in Sardis, but we can actually remember. We can talk, we can argue, we can ask questions. We can work it down into our souls, into our hearts. I know it's not convenient. I'm sorry. <laughs> but in some ways it's kind of the point that it's not that convenient. But what we're trying to do is create a context to come back again to the passage that we're looking at on Sundays to help us remember, to help us. Like, we can't do this on our own. We have to, we have to uh, do this together. We have to talk it out because we forget. And we think we know, but we don't really know. And so Jesus says, remember, we've got to tell ourselves the story of the gospel again and again. Fourth, keep it. Keep it. Jesus says, remember what you have heard and keep it. Hold on tight to what you have received from Jesus. And I think that um, what Jesus is getting at here is this. You are responsible for your own spiritual growth. Um, nobody, can, nobody can do this for you. And I, I kind of hate to say this, but nobody, nobody can help you hold on to Jesus. Uh, I mean, we can help you. <laughs> and like, and that's, that, like the church is here for you. We love you. We want to do everything we can to encourage you, to come alongside you, to support you, um, to provide for you, to teach you, to be there for you, to be friends with you and for you. But no one can make you grow as a Christian. You've got to take hold of it. You will not grow if you don't want to. You've got to hold on to Jesus. And then fifthly, the last thing Jesus says is repent. And I know that I've mentioned this several times in the last couple of weeks. Because Jesus' constant uh, encouragement to the church, each of these seven churches, is to repent. It's in almost every one of his letters, but there's a reason for that. Because what Jesus is saying is that repentance is like the, uh, the ongoing theme of the Christian life. Repentance is not the way simply that we become Christians, but it's the way that we live as Christians. Martin Luther... Um, you know, uh, Martin Luther, who was a, who was a monk and who um, nailed his 95 theses on the church door, uh, the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and began the Protestant Reformation that changed the Western world. Martin Luther's first thesis was this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. The entire life of believers should be repentance. Repentance is not this painful thing that we do once in our lives, and man, I'm glad that's behind me. Repentance is a day in and day out uh, reality for Christians. Repentance isn't um, just how we become Christians. It's a daily reality for Christians. It's not just saying, I'm sorry. Um, it's not simply coming to terms with what we've done. Repentance is bringing all that we are and bringing ourselves to Jesus and bringing ourselves to the foot of the cross and entrusting Jesus to deal with ourselves, to deal with us as we are. Saying like, Jesus, I'm going to cast myself on you and I'm going to take whatever you give me. And the promise is that he will always give us grace. But I think that this is so important for many of us because, um, you know, how, how do we typically deal with our failure? 
how do we typically deal with our sin? I mean, we, we kind of have this category of small sins that we ignore, big sins that are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And then we kind of just, what do you do when you commit a big sin? We just wait long enough so that it doesn't feel quite as bad anymore. Um, we try to come to terms with it. You know, yeah, I screwed up, but when I screwed up, everybody turned their back on me. And we somehow work this like victim mentality into our own failure. And it just feels to me like we don't actually repent. And what happens when you don't repent is it's like, you know, when you come out of the bathroom and there's still toilet paper falling behind you, it's always there. And Jesus doesn't want to shame you. He wants to heal you. He wants to forgive you. I don't think it's really repentance to say, sure, I messed up. I wish I hadn't done that. I mean, of course you wish you hadn't done it. But repentance is bringing all that you are, our successes and our failures, to the cross and saying, Jesus, this is who I am. Please take me. Please care for me. Please heal me. Repentance is bringing all that we are to the foot of the cross and entrusting ourselves to Jesus. And until we repent, that thing that we did, or the cumulative you know, weight of all that we have done, will always be like right here, just out of you. So repent. Okay, well finally, what's the motivation to kind of keep holding on to that rope? Uh, keep holding on to Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 4 and following. He says, Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to, to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here's what I think Jesus is saying, is, is this. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, you will either feel dirty or you will know that Jesus has given you a new name. And those are essentially the two options. Wake up because you're dead and I want to give you life. Just keep holding on. Repent, not because I want to shame you, but because I want to heal you. And at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, you will either feel dirty and soiled or you will be clean because you have been given a new name. Several years ago, before I was the pastor here at Resurrection OC, I was a college pastor for six years. And um, the thing I love about college students is that um, they're less sophisticated in, in the way that they kind of explain their life story. And uh, I, I remember getting to know this, this freshman girl. Um, let's say her name was Julie. That's not her name, but... And uh, she began to tell me her, her life story, and, um, and, and Julie, her life story was that her dad died when she was four years old. And uh, her mom, as a result of her dad's death, her mom just like spiraled out of control, and by the time she was eight, Julie had been placed in foster care. And, uh, and she said that, um, I was always looking for my forever family. It's so heartbreaking to hear this, this young girl say, I, can, I think I can kind of maybe remember what my dad looked like. 
But she described, you know, over and over and over again, packing up her things and going into a new home, hoping that maybe this time, this would be the home where she lived and where she stayed and where she was welcome. And she said, but it always came to an end and I always had to move. And so in middle school and in junior high, she says, I began to rebel. I began to look for uh, acceptance and comfort and drugs and alcohol and boys. And she said, I always felt dirty and I always regretted it. And then she said, when I was 18, I turned, I aged out of the foster care system and I, I never found my forever family. And she had a couch surf with friends for a couple months to graduate high school. But because she was a foster child, she uh, got to go to college and her first week in college, her RA invited her to a Bible study and she said, I never read the Bible and I didn't really want to go, but I was just so desperate to be invited and included in something. And she said, I went. And after years of feeling guilty and feeling like I could never clean myself up for God, I realized somebody told me that I couldn't clean myself up for God and that Jesus lived and died and rose again to make me clean. She said, I put my trust in Jesus. And she says, she said, I was baptized and God put his name on me. I was baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God put his name on me and I had a new family and I finally found my forever family. I have a family, I have a name, and now I'm clean. And the question is, what about you? What about you? Jesus says, come to me and I will never blot out your name and I will confess your name before my Father and his angels and you will be clean. Jesus says, I will never blot out your name because on the cross, Jesus was blotted out for us. Jesus says, you will wear white because on the cross, I became dirty for you. Jesus is your substitute. He goes to the cross taking your place. He takes upon you your dirtiness, your sin, your shame, your guilt, and he gives you instead his perfection, his cleanliness, his righteousness. So friends, this is the good news. So wake up, sit up, and hold on to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you have made us clean. You've given us a name by giving us yourself. And Jesus, I pray that you would enable us to be people who don't simply uh, rest on our reputation, our past record of doing things well. But that we would be vigilant, that we would be aware, that we would be uh, awake, that we would hold on tightly to the gospel, that as a church we would uh, meet together formally and informally to help uh, remind each other of what is true. And having done that, that you would send us out into the world as good news people. You have made us clean. You have given us a name. We thank you in Jesus' name.